Welcome to Influenced. In this podcast, we dive into a world behind the phone camera, the social media profiles and the studio lenses to speak directly to some well-known inspiring people who have built themselves from nothing to the height of their industry. Bedroom badasses turn billboard bosses and how they got there. Join me, Paul Ryder, as I found out why we are influenced. In this industry, you have to be more than a triple threat. And my next guest wouldn't have enough fingers to count the attributes to his craft. Actor, stage performer, director and TV presenter, Simon Delaney joins me this week. He talks to me about the many different aspects of his life and learnings, including his stint in Hollywood, learning how to get the dreaded no and how it's vital to always remember those on the way up as you may need them on the way back down. This insight into the world of a high-profile player shows just how wonderful this human is. Today, I'm influenced by Simon Delaney. Today, I am joined by actor, the legend, the myth, the icon, the one, the only, Mr. Simon Delaney. Hello! I think I've been called a lot of things in my life. Never a myth. A myth. Well, they, listen, this is this is the reason why we're doing this podcast, is to get behind the myth. We're going really well, behind... Can I say, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for asking me to be on the show. I appreciate it. I love the bones you. Off you go. Well, this is the thing. And like the 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 name of the podcast is Influenced and it's talking to influential people about their career and stuff. And for the first season, I said, I only wanted to talk to people that I could actually have a fun, open and genuine, honest conversation. Um, yeah. And that's that's where that's where you kind of come into it. Now, obviously, we'll get into the the, the ideas of how we know each other because we we go yeah. back years and years and years, ten but years I, and more. More, it's actually more now, which Jesus. is weird. Um, I want to start off by asking about the dreaded the dreaded L word, which of course is lockdown. Um, and I yeah. just want to find out a how you're doing with this on your own in your own in your own head in your own space. Yeah, I'm good, Paul. I mean, I'm I'm looking in terms of I've I've got. Great distractions here at home, obviously with Lisa and the boys. So we we've had that whole, you know, ten months now of, of self of the homeschooling thing, which is, which hasn't been easy. Um, you know, we've got a, a teenager uh, who's, you know, had a struggle through it. It's not easy for them. I think they've got a really really raw deal, the kids, through this. Um, you know, my eldest is fourteen and hasn't been in school since before Christmas. And, it's very hard for them. They're they're not. There's no social interactions at all. They're doing all the lessons online. They can't hang out with their pals. So we're kind of picking up the slack with that. So we're trying as best we can to go out for walks. The Paul, I'm getting the boys cooking, which is one great thing to come out of lockdown. Is that two or three or all four of the boys will stand beside me now and we'll cook a dish together. I think that's an incredible thing for a fella to have, particularly. Mm. It's just a couple of couple of recipes in their back pocket. So. Look, I, I'm fortunate enough that I was kept busy in terms of we were deemed essential in Virgin Media back last March. Um, again, being called a lot of things in my life, Paul, never essential by anybody or anything. <laughs> but, uh, so I was able to still go to work. And then I sort of busied myself. I wrote my first novel during lockdown, um, which will hopefully be published later on this year. And then, you know, like yourself, there's different projects that we're trying to get away all the time. But writing has been my sanctuary for this this particular last 12 months. And has it been tough when, when, you know, before this all happened, you would have gone and disappeared for a month and filmed a film or filmed a TV yeah. show and stuff like that. Has it been tough to kind of be stuck at home and to kind of be stuck in Dublin as well as, 
you know, because a lot of people in your situation who are self-employed will be used to going off and doing all these exciting things, but we haven't had that for over a year. Yeah, 100%, Paul. I mean, I lost a lot of work last year. I mean, we were supposed to do another one of our kind of driving series of documentaries for the RSA, which were on RTE, that got shelved. Um, I lost a, a great job in Bulgaria, which was a, a job for Netflix, a great sci-fi series. There was a job in the UK that I was due to do. Again, a comedy series for uh, the Dave channel that went by the wayside. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I lost a lot of work. It was a, it was a difficult year, but listen, I haven't had a difficulty in comparison to the majority of people in our business, Paul, who haven't worked since the 14th of March last year. So, you know, I do count myself as a very, very lucky boy that I've had uh, the sanctuary of, of Virgin Media and the television work to do every week. But you know me long enough now that I'll never sit idle. Hence, on day three of a lockdown last year, I thought I'm going to write a book. I finished it six weeks later and I'm now on draft six and in various talks with agents and publishers. So I'll never, I'll never be accused of being idle. Um, so that's kind of kept me going in terms, but that keeps us going, Paul. And when I say us, I mean you and me in terms of self-employed people in this business, you have to diversify. You have to pivot, change, do different things because if we were to, you know, we were to, pigeonhole ourselves into one part of our industry even take theatre Paul where mm. you and I work a lot even if you were to pigeonhole yourself within theatre to say I'm only going to do drama I'm only going to do theatre I'm not going to do musicals I'm not going to do pantos you're cutting down your options and particularly like everybody we rent we mortgages and you know some of us have kids and that you can't really afford to be that not that picky not that choosy but you can't limit yourself you know what I mean and I think that's something why I kind of really wanted to talk to you today as well is because I met you when I was 16. We started to do mm. Panto together. It was a crazy, crazy time. And I learned so much from you in a way that, like what you've just said there, you cannot say no, you cannot turn down the work and you cannot turn down a variation of work because it'll all stand to you in times to come and you'll be able to kind of put your put your, put your stamp on something new each time someone comes to you. A hundred percent. But I tell you that one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, Paul, was from uh, Brendan O'Carroll, who said to me that the toughest thing to do in this business is actually to say no. You know, mm. it does get to a point where you need to go, actually, no, I'm not going to do that job because A, it's not something I'm going to be comfortable doing. It's not within my wheelhouse. You know, so saying no is tough, particularly when you're self-employed, because you never know when the next offer is going to come around. But that idea of having to pivot and change and and treat it like a job, you know, acting is not, it's not a calling, it's not a vocation, it's not, you know, it's a job. I think that's what a lot of young actors, uh, you know, don't realize when they're getting into it, is that it is a job, you need to manage your schedule, you need planning, you need prep, you need to, you know, do work on your auditions, do work on your self-tape, put the work in because that will come out then. I remember I remember the first time when self-taping came around, Paul. I had no confidence in it because I'm like you, I like getting in a room with a person, cast director or director, shaking their hands, eye contact, having the chat, and then going through your stuff. And I thought, this idea of sitting at home and taping or in your agent's office and taping, where's the connection? And also, when you're in a room with a director or a cast director and you, you play the scene, the director might say to you, listen, Paul, that was great. Why don't you try it like this or try it with that spin or try it with that accent or make him give it more levity, more brevity. Whereas in a self-tape, you're not getting any notes. So you're making the choice and you're either going to be on or you're going to be off. You're going to be on the money 
are you going to be a mile off? So that's where when you get a, even when you get a script or pages to self tape nowadays, do your research, look at who the writers are. What have they done before? Who's the director? What way do they shoot? Are they free in terms of jumping off scripts? Are they rigid? And that determines then what choices you're going to make when you do that self tape. Give yourself the best opportunity, do the homework. And I remember the first time I booked a job off tape um, was, it was This Must Be The Place with Sean Penn. And I thought, I'm not the booking a job off tape. They haven't even met me. I thought it was bizarre. And now it's the way of the world. The last three jobs that I've done and one I have coming up soon, I've booked off tape. That's the way the world is. And it's a question I had for you later on, but has has the industry changed in that way because of the likes of social media? Is it easier nowadays to go out and get a job because you can do those sort of things? You can research auditions, there's websites that show all this sort of stuff. Or do you prefer the the older days when you kind of started out and, you know, going out and mm. standing in the audition room with, you know, 12 other people or do you know this sort of a way? Yeah, I, th- I don't think social media has made much of a difference in terms of... Uh, your work as an actor or a performer because look there's no doubt about it it's a great PR tool yeah. and that's all it is and it's a platform you can showcase stuff but there's no doubt about it that the internet as a whole is a great research tool and we, we, we can't be afraid of that you know use it it's there for us it's at our fingertips you know if, if you get an opportunity to do your research and you have this portal in front of you take it you know mm-hmm. give it again treat it like it's a job it's not a pastime if you've got an audition to do, treat that seriously. Put a half a day away, do your research on the work, learn the lines as best you can. And then, again, it's giving yourself that best opportunity when you go on tape. I used to say it to actors 15 years ago when I was directing, give yourself, when you're going in, you're standing inside that door going in for the audition part, and you've been there, you know this. You want to go in, I always try and take the attitude, and I tell actors to do this. Take the attitude that you're going into that room to solve a problem for those people in there. So that when you walk out, they go, right, well, at least that's Michael Cast. We can move on now. You know, solve the problem for them. You are the answer to their problem. They don't know it yet. But over the next three to six minutes, you're going to show them the are. And where does where does the, the line between that confidence of going in and enjoying the audition and confidence to the cockiness? Because you know, as well as I do, we've met 101 people in an audition where they'll 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 almost be too confident in a way, and it mm-hmm. kind of has that turnoff point. Is is there a happy medium in the middle there to kind of know what 100%, you're doing? 100. Yeah, and any actor that tells you, you know, before they go into an audition or before they set foot on stage, is it nervous? They're not doing it right. Because you've got to have the nerves, because the nerves, as you know, creates that energy, that adrenaline, and that push for when you go out there. Particularly, and I found this when I was doing the West End, doing eight shows a week, and you know this, Jesus, it's a graft. That's when it becomes a real job. And you need that energy, and that energy comes from nerves. If you're too cocky, the day you think you have it licked, you're in trouble, baby. And I've I've had that a couple of times. I remember having it one, one particular night in London. I... Okay, let's be honest, but I had a hangover, Paul. I was dying. Oh. Yeah, and I was doing Stones for his pockets, two-man show, playing yeah. 20 odd parts. And uh, I thought, nah, sure, I've done it 800 times now. Sure, I can just walk on and do this. Oh, boy, the hangover hit, and uh, I died a thousand deaths on that stage. And uh, I was disgusted with myself when I came off. And I've never, since that day, gone on the stage on over again. Because, it, A, it terrified me. 
it frightened the life out of me. And I felt like I'd let down the producers, my cast members and the audience because they hadn't got their full money's worth that the previous night's audience did. They saw a different show. So that's when I said, no, no, come on. We're not in the school hall now needing more anymore to doing our amateur shows, which we took very seriously. Yeah. But there was, you were able to get away with things. No, no. Because the West End is the Premier League. Absolutely. Now, we're, we're, we're racing ahead there. I, I kind of want to go back to the start. Um, on, yeah. Just not not this not a childhood. Like we're not going to go back when you were a baby. No, how did you feel God. about this? Yeah, how did you feel about your mother? Yeah, no, let's not do that, Polly, because I loved her. By the way, uh, yeah. Was was the world of entertainment always something you saw yourself doing? Did like did you have a glint in in your eye, or was it later in life that kind of kicked about? Yeah, never in the slightest. I uh, had had no inclination towards it, no growl towards it. Um, no, had had no ambitions for. Uh, working on the stage, on screen, none of it uh, growing up. And it's strange because my dad, my late dad, was involved in show bands in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So, so it was in your blood, uh, basically. Yeah, I mean, he played sax, played clarinet, and he was a lead vocalist in a band. Like So wow. there, was, there was showbiz there. You know, they were back in the 60s. There was a television show called The Show Band Show. You spent RT1. Big deal. And on the first night of the first episode of this, the first band to play were my dad's band. Huge. Wow, show bands were yeah, the big so show bands were the big deal back in the day. They, they were they were, were your celebrities, stars, Paul. Yeah, they but were your also, Lady Gagas. But also, Paul, they were all working during the day. Like my dad yeah. was a printer. Yeah, and he, on, a, on a Friday when they knock off one o'clock a half day on Friday, all the instruments they're back in the car and they drove to Cork to the gig. Next night they were in Galway, then they were in Mayo, and then back home and Dublin to go to work. So that was yeah. the life, rock and roll. Um, so no, I had no ambitions I grow towards it, and again. I had an influence there in terms of, and I didn't know it at the time, but now I do look back. My cousin, Niall Boogie, who was one of the finest actors that our country has produced. He, you know, he's, he's a Laurence Olivier award-winning actor. Uh, he appeared in King David with Richard Gere in the 80s. And I remember hearing stories about our cousin, Niall, uh, and, and seeing these photographs on set in Egypt with, with uh, Richard Gere and, and I remember his mother, my, my late auntie, Auntie Kathleen, came home and she had she went over to visit him on the set and they went there filming in Rome and she had a menu from a hotel in Rome and it was signed by Richard Gere. I thought, wow, so far away from where I was living in Kulak, but I thought, this is a member of my family. And I remember then when my mom passed away, I remember I remember vividly um, sitting at the, at the bottom of the stairs in the house and Niall, had been at the funeral, of course, all the family were there and there was a few jars had and I was doing voices and impressions and telling stories. He was, he was a show, it's a showman. Mm. Uh, and that, that, that obviously stuck in there somewhere. But it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I literally fell into it, Paul. Literally fell into it. And you did kind of fall into it because I know that you, you, your like your career kicked off big time kind of later off later on in life. And I know you were you were a big fan of the amateur dramatics. And did you stick in amateur dramatics mm. for quite some time? Is that kind of how you 100%. eased into it? Hundred percent. That's where I got my training. Well, best training I ever got. Like I, yeah. I have never trained a day formally as an actor, but I joined the musical society when I was about twenty-two, something like that. And it was such a grounding because we were doing plays, pantos, musicals, comedies, dramas, everything. Now, not only were we doing them, performing them, we were building the sets, we were hanging the lights, we were painting the sets, wow. we were going looking for props, we were designing posters, we were selling tickets, we were looking for costumes. You did everything. Um, I was directing shows then when I was about 25, 26, we were directing 
like Cabaret and West Side Story, like big shows, you know, but I stay with it and still have, still very well connected to it. You said something there that will strike a lot of people that you didn't study acting. Uh, it no. was never something that you went to a school of acting for four years and, and no. learned your craft in a way. And I, I, I use the inverted commas for that because I stand by a very much of a same idea of you. The only way you'll get it is by doing it and by learning it and getting out there. And some people can sneer at the Amateur Dramatic Society, but like you've mm-hmm. just said there, who is now a working actor and a very, very well-known person, that it's it's by doing it. That's how that's how you do 100%. it. 100%. Listen, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the mantra that, you know, I don't think you can teach somebody to act well. Mm. I think you can teach somebody the craft of acting in mm. terms of stagecraft, how to walk onto a stage, how to open a door on stage, how to behave on stage, positions, upstaging. You can teach someone a craft, but I think it has to be in here. There's a great quote from one of, if not my favourite movie of all time, which is a movie called Glengarry and Glen Ross, which stars Al Pacino, Kevin Spacey, Alec Baldwin, uh, Jonathan Price, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin. Incredible uh, ensemble of actors and it was a play originally and I remember do, we did the play twice back in the day in Andrews Lane studio and uh, there was a poster on the wall in the movie and it, it, the movie's based on their, their real estate salesman and I was a salesman by trade and there's a poster on the wall that says salesmen are born not made and mm. I thought that's so true because when I was a salesman a rep in my early days my early 20s you're only as good as your last week's sales figures. I think that's where I learned my trade because it also prepared me for being an actor because I wasn't afraid of hearing the word no as an actor because I was hearing the word no 30 times a day when I was selling photocopiers. Yeah. You know what I mean? So rejection was a part of my daily life. And rejection is a massive part of this industry now. How do you yeah. how do you make that easier? How do you get that pain away from, from the no? Because... You know, we all still feel it. We all still hear it. Uh, and it doesn't get any yeah. easier as, as, you, as you get older. No, in fact, it gets harder, Paul. I, um, if I can tell you one story, um, I remember about, oh, must be six, seven years ago, I got a call from my agent in the States and they said, uh, we want you to sell tape for X, Y, and Z. So it was a new TV series, Paul. It was a drama. Um, it was a, a new English version of this Norwegian drama. Remember the Norwegian Scandinavian dramas? Yeah. Which are now huge. This was one that had been on, uh, on Scandinavian TV, but they were now going to do a big American TV production for ABC. Wanted me to self-tape for one of the leads in a top grade. Did my homework, did my self-tape, sent it over to the States. My manager called me about a week later and said, listen, they love your tape. They want you to redo it. And they give me some notes. And that's always a good sign as an actor. Mm. A, approves they watch the feckin' thing. Mm-hmm. And B, they see something there, they just want to tweak it. And again, it goes back to that thing. If you're in the room with somebody, the director would say, that's great, but just change it. Yeah. They did this over a sound tape. I retaped. I get a call about a week later from my agent saying, uh, they want you to um, go over and uh, they want to see you. They want to, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they want to... Oh, I can't think of the word. Anyway, they want to put you on camera. They wanted to screen test you. Yeah. I thought, wow, what the hell is this screen test? I heard about screen tests in Entourage, like, you know what the hell they were. So I was I was flown out to LA. And the night before I flew out to LA, Paul, I had to sign a contract for the gig. Now, the gig wasn't, it didn't exist. Mm. But it was for a pilot of this new show. But because they'd been stung over many years about by actors saying, oh, I'll do it for $2,000. Then when it goes to a series, they want, I know, I want 50. So you've signed a deal. So I signed a seven-year deal with 
ABC worth like telephone numbers. Myself and Lisa were sitting on the couch the night before I went away gone. Like this changes our grandchildren's lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it didn't exist. It was just a piece of paper. Because anyway, flew out to LA, went to ABC, straight on the plane to ABC, sitting in reception. And I'd done my homework and I knew who the director was. And I saw her walk into reception. And she turned and she said, oh, Simon, thank you so much for coming over. I said, ah, listen, I said, it's nothing. It's just an 8,000-mile round trip. It's easy. I was down the road anyway. Break the ice, get a bit of a laugh, you know. So she says, uh, listen, so excited to see what you're going to do upstairs. It's great. So see you upstairs. Up she went. So I brought upstairs. I mic'd, mic put on me, into a room, Paul, which is a little sort of studio, three cameras, about 40 people in the room, all in suits, executives, studio executives, network executives. I'm up on the stage and I have an actor reading up to me. Unreal. So anyway, I read and I read again and I read again. I'm told to go outside. I'm brought back in. I read again. Change this, do that, do this. And it was a tough scene. It was a breakdown scene. So I had to cry. So I was about, about an hour and a half. Anyway, did it. Went back to my staying on a couch in a friend's apartment downtown LA, uh, opposite Cat's Diner. If anyone knows LA, greatest diner in the yeah. city. Anyway, I went for the phone call. I said to my agent, said, by the way, so when I go over, I said, like, how close am I to this gig? Obviously, there's been hundreds of thousands of self takes. She said, oh, you're probably down to about 20. I thought, wow. And you do the tape. She rings that night, my agent. She said, okay, here's the story. It has to get past the studio. If it gets past studio, it goes to the network. And then it gets past studio network, the final choice. <laughs> oh, my nerves are gone. So gone. I get a call. I get a call and I'd say, you got past studio. You're now down to the last 10. Wait two more days in LA, get a call. You've got past network. You're down to the last two. Oh, Jesus. So, my nerves are gone here. <laughs> so I'm out on the balcony with my pal in downtown LA. And I said, my agent said, you're going to get the call tomorrow. Yes, I know. So the night before the phone call, I'm standing out in the balcony with Dave, my pal, Steph, and there, thinking, I'm looking out over the city in LA, thinking, somewhere in LA, there's another guy standing in a balcony going, <laughs> wonder who the guy is, you know? So anyway, I wait. Next day, I get the phone call at six o'clock in the evening. Didn't get it. Oh my God. No, I knew you didn't get it, but it still kills me here sitting here now. So let, and let me tell you, Flying home through Philadelphia and into Dublin, it was horrendous because it was the first time I'd gone away and yeah. not come home without with the gig. And I, I remember crying. I remember crying. Going to the toilet on the plane, crying. And uh, I remember getting home and I was broken. I was broken. But of course, I had an incredible woman who you know very well, Lisa, who very well. picked me up and slapped me around the chops and said, get back on the bike, away you go again, you know. So that's what you do. But it's still, that's six years ago, stings like a bugger. Do moments like that make you want to throw in the towel? Or is it always 100%. just a part of it? Like, has there been moments over the last kind of couple of years where you've wanted yeah. to throw in the towel and say, oh, no, fuck this, I can't be arsed? Yeah, absolutely. And that I came very close with them, Paul. I thought, really? Jesus, what, yeah, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And what you turns know? you around on that? What makes you... You land a gig. Exactly. You I was hoping you you'd say that because because as, as I'm the same as yourself, you kind of... You, the only thing that makes you feel good about what you're doing is booking mm. a job. And as the old phrase goes, you're only as good as your last gig. And yeah. well, booking a job, it's it's that affirmation that we all seek in our daily life anyway, Paul. Yeah. If anyone, if there's a fellow, if there's a carpenter builds a, a table and someone says, that's a lovely table. There's your affirmation. 
the same yeah. as us getting a critics review for our show. Yeah, it you was want good. The... It was shite. You want affirmation. But I mean, I put a lot of work into the American thing. I'd, I'd been out there for three or four years. And I'd done a couple of movies and TV things. And, and listen, that's not an easy thing because you can't just arrive there in, in yeah. Hollywood. You need, you need to get your visa. You need to get a lawyer. You need to get your manager. You need to get an agent before you can even go into a room and audition. That's what I'm saying again about doing your homework. It's a job. Do your homework, you know. Was it a decision to go pro, like go pro again, we use the inverted commas, or like did one day you kind of say, all right, listen, because I know you've said in interviews before that you've, you've had 101 jobs. Uh, oh, yeah. And I'm, inter- I'm interested to hear what sort of jobs you, you've, oh, you've had. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I used to go to interviews, Paul, and was quicker to tell people who I hadn't fucking worked for. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my CV was like the yellow pages. Um, I was a sales rep. I sold everything from photocopiers, office equipment, life insurance, portraits, furniture, Everything, you name it, I sold it. And I was doing a show in Anders Lane Studio back in 2000, maybe 1999. Doing a play, and I was working in a car factor's place in Jones's Road, selling car parts. Mm. And I got a phone call from Niall Buggy, who's my cousin. Yeah. His sister Eileen is a makeup artist in the business, has been for 30 years. She, uh, Her partner is a stuntman and a film writer. And he, she rang me out of the blue and said, Alan, her partner, has written a short film. It's due to get shot next week in Ardmore. It's a three-hander. But one of the lads has been in, offered a gig and had to leave because he got a paid job. Because when mm-hmm. you do these shorts and pilots, you do them for nothing, as you know. Mm-hmm. She said, do you want to do it? I said, well, I'll be in a film. Like. She said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, Alan saw you in that play. He's going to teach you great. Teach you be great for the part. I thought, Jesus. So... A week later, I went to my boss and said, can I have a week off? I said, yeah, well, you're going away. I said, no, I'm doing a film. I said, you're right. I said, I'm doing a film in Ardmore. Out I went to Ardmore, made the film, gorgeous half-hour short called Vicious Circle, set during the Easter Rising, 1916. And uh, about three months after the film came out, it premiered at the Galway Film Flat, and an agent saw me uh, and said, come on over. And I remember, this is how ill-prepared I was for the business. I turned up to meet my agent in my salesman's suit. Yeah. Looked like I was there to sell her fucking mops. You know what I mean? <laughs> I couldn't have looked more unlike a fucking actor if I tried. Yeah. And um, I, she said, do you want to give it a go for six months? And I thought, I was 26, and I thought, you know what? I'll try it for six months because I can always get a sales rep job. And that was 22 years ago. She's still my agent. And now she's one of my best friends, Lorraine. Wow, Lorraine Brennan. Wow. Yeah, yeah there and, you go. And come here, like starting that off, you'd done bits of Cat Pass to Freedom was, and Bally Kiss Angel, but was the Bachelor's Walk, the big break, was that kind of the one that went, right, shit, hold 100%. on a minute? Yeah, 100%. And again, we did a pilot for that, Paul. Um, again, a freebie, we did a pilot. This guy got in touch with me through my agents. And actually, when I went to audition for the pilot, Paul, I auditioned for the part of the shopkeeper. And about really? four lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the story goes, because John Carney, who's wrote and directed, who's since gone on to do Once and Sing Street. And yeah, he's done it. love. Amazing. Fabulous. Uh, amazing talent. And diseased with talent, as Twink would say. Diseased? Um, diseased. Adele. Um, <laughs> on our birthday and all today. On our birthday. God bless. <laughs> the 37th day. Can't believe it. I Can't remember the 30th. What a night. Um, <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, the darling, no doubt. Um, so, yeah, so I went to an audition and I met John Kearney in Morning Years uh, Casting Rooms, which, were, which was our house back in the day before she had an office. And uh, I went in and I met this shopkeeper. And I remember doing 
was just chatting to him and sending him to funny voices and accents. And so anyway, I left and I got a call from the rain. Like, this is this is how bad this dates it, Paul, right? I didn't even have a phone. And we we'd a pay phone in the house. I had a pager, which my agent had given me. So she beeps me and tells me that I got this gig and did it and got cat and she said they wanted to play Michael. I said, Michael back with like one of the leads. Yeah. So anyway, did that. And uh but that was a pilot, and it was very different. There were six of us in the show, and the pilot, three fellas, three girls. Yeah. So the, the, when it went to air, it was very different because it was just three boys. And, like, I was the only actor from the pilot to make the series. Oh, really? Yeah, Paul Hickey was in it, Mark O'Halloran, and Deirdre O'Kane. He, oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was a totally different cast. And uh, when it got commissioned and picked up, I I was lucky enough to... Uh, be to, to remain on as Michael, and then we did three seasons of it, and it was just it was amazing. yourself, Keith Keith McCurlin, and Don Widgerly, who it was almost like a weird modern day version of Friends. Am I right in saying that? Hundred percent. But I mean, that's originally when they wrote the script. Again, it was three lads, three girls. Yeah, that's Friends. Uh, you know, because that's what the appetite was for. But then they just decided to go with the boys. And did you know at the time that it was going to be such? an Irish institution and like did you have a feeling when you're on set and kind of filming those bits I say on set but like you're literally walking the, the length of breath of Dublin city oh, you know, 100%, doing... yeah. I, I tell you what we, we all knew it was good because the scripts yeah. were great like you know the scripts the script was gold so we knew that and then the way they shot it was very different remember, remember in the first episode we did a tracking shot of walking out of the house across the keys down the boardwalk mm. across the bridge into Temple Bar that had never been done before. Never. Television. But the only time Dublin had been seen on screen was Fair City. And yes. That's a set. It was yeah, the first, yeah. it was the first of its kind to be yeah. able to, like that proper panoramic kind of real. location. Yeah, absolutely. I remember a journalist writing after the first series, a journalist wrote, he said, I live on Bachelors Walk. He said, but I wish I lived on their Bachelors Walk because it looks like Paris. Yeah. You know, and it, the way they shot it was so clever. Um, and it wasn't work at all, Paul. We were drinking pints again in some mulligans at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Four cigarettes a day. It was great crack. Oh, my um, God. There was there was three seasons, 21 episodes. Was there a reason yeah. it stopped at three? Or did had it, was it just... It was only ever originally written, Paul, as one series. Okay. And they only ever wrote the first series. And then because it was so well-received critically, so well-received with the public, and RTE said, this is a smash, they said, write another one. So they did. And they wrote a third one. And the reason it stopped was quite simply because the three lads who voted John Kearney, Kieran Kearney and Tom Hall, it's very hard to write good comedy, good, consistent comedy. Three separate storylines. Keep that interesting. Keep the audience. And that's why you see on these big American shows, Paul, you look at the writers. There's about 30 of them. Lists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lists of them, you know. Um, so that's why you have to tip your hat to the likes of John O'Sullivan who wrote the likes of Only Fools and Horses. Wrote it on his own. 25 series of it I kept it interesting kept it funny kept it current um, so they just they just thought now look we'll, we'll walk away while the dawn is good but look a lot of it's down to chance Paul absolutely it, it is down to chance it did come back to RTE uh, last, last May in 2020 um, mm. which was kind of surreal was there talk of a reunion would there ever be something that you could kind of go back again because yeah, would you do it I mean oh god in a heartbeat yeah sure I'd love to work with the lads again um we actually, believe it or not, here's a bit of a, an exclusive for you, Polly. We were actually reunited last November. The three of us appeared on a film set together for the first time in 18 years. Really? We did an episode. The three of us were cast in an episode of Modern Love, 
with Mini Driver, which is the series for Amazon Prime. Yes. And the three of us are in the same episode. Uh, again, John Kearney wrote it and directed it, and he got fair play that we got brought the three of us back. So we were able to spend the time on set. It was bizarre. 18 years since we've been on set together. And is it good? Is it good to catch up and kind of see how people, how much life has changed, and uh, how much you know? Well, it's like it's like you know, I don't see you for six months, and I see you, you just pick straight up. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like that's what friendship, good friendship is. You just carry on. Um, it was great. It was a magical time to spend with them before Christmas. So, listen, who knows? I mean, it could come back in some way, shape, or form. We'll see. We'll see. But it's most definitely but, something that you would that you that you jump course, on the chance yeah. to do. Absolutely, Bob. Absolutely. And you spoke there about John Carney, who he kind of you you said in interviews he kind of formed your career. You said uh, 100%. he had a hand over your career. He was behind Bachelor's Walk, Zonad, kind of song save your life. How is it, how important is it to find good people to rely on in the industry? Oh, 100 percent, Paul. You have to make relationships, and you have to make good relationships. But they have to be sincere, genuine relationships. You know. Yeah. Um, but as I said, like there's so much down to luck and chance, being in the right place at the right time. I mean, you know, when I first went over to the States, I put together a list of meetings with Lorraine and we were trying to get to see this cast director, that cast director, this director, whoever. And I made a great list of meetings done. And uh, I remember talking to John Carney about a month before I went. He said, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. He said, I must see if I can get you dig out with some meetings because he once had just hit in America. Yes. It's like Spielberg called it the yeah. good movie of the year. So John was a hot potato. And I said, that'd be great, John. Yeah. And then about two days before I left, he texted me and said, uh, yeah, so Judd Apatow said he'd meet you. And I'm like, Judd Apatow? Like as in the multi-year-old virgin, everything. Anything yeah, yeah, yeah. Do a comedy. Yeah, yeah, he'll meet you. So my first meeting on my first day in L.A., Judd Apatow and went and met him and it's called a general meeting because you're not going to see him you're not going to audition for anything you're not going with a specific project in mind you just you just want to put yourself in front of these people and go hi I'm what I am please remember me in four years time when you're casting something that's all yeah. you do yeah so I met the guy and here again back to homework and prep pub. before we left for the states Lorraine came with me on that trip because remember we're on the hunt for an agent and a manager not just a general casting trip. Lorraine goes to the Kilkenny shop in town and buys loads of little Irish trinkets, Irish beer mats, Irish key rings, and makes up bags, one for men, one for women. She said, before you went to every meeting, you bring the bag image, a little gift. I thought that's very clever. So, pull up outside Judd Apatow's office, into the booted car. We're like Del Boy and fucking Rodney. <laughs> boot of the car. Boot of the car. Lorraine gives you the man's bag. So, a little gift bag. It's what's in it is a pack, a six pack of Guinness bear mats, Paul. Like, yeah, it's not called bullion here, but anyway, I walk in. Well, this is beautiful. So this is homework research and the old salesman technique. I walk in to meet with Judd, Judd, Simon, nice to meet you. Hey, Simon, good to see you. I said, I brought you a little something. Oh my god, what's that? I said, Ah, it's a little Irish tradition, it's called bribery. They laugh, <laughs> the, ice, the ice is broken, and you've broken the Broken, you've broken the ice, you're chatting away. He takes out the Guinness beer mats, and I was like, I'd given him the keys to a Cadillac. He was like, Oh, look at these fucking, these are fucking cool, man. Yeah. And I, so then we have an hour of conversation. Uh, four, three, four weeks later, we're still in LA, no agent yet. I've met a dozen agents and managers. My New York based manager has now flown to LA. 
we're having dinner thinking, okay, what are we going to do here? She gets a call. She said, I can't get you in front of CAA. I can't get you in front of UTA, two of the biggest agencies. Yeah. She gets a call. Uh, UTA want to meet today. Well, where did that come from? So anyway, long story short, I go to UTA with my manager and my Irish agents where Wine and Dines were signed up. And it turns out that apparently when I left the meeting with Apatow, he picked up the phone to his agent, UTA, and said, anybody heard of Simon Delaney? Why? You got to sign him. And that's literally... And that meeting was because I mentioned to John Carney, I'm going to America. And so, it, from there then... The, the, the UTA agent told me the story then, Paul, apparently what happened was she hung up the phone and she let a scream around the office in Beverly Hills gone. Anyone know who the fuck Simon Delaney is? And apparently I was Googled. They put a file together. They tracked me down. I went in and I signed. Amazing, oh my goodness. That is ridiculous, incredible. Isn't it? It's like an episode of Entourage. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. Meet, meeting the right people. And was that where was that where the, the delivery man film with, with Vince Vaughn kind of kicked off? Or was that in again, and around the listen, same time? Listen to this. This is ridiculous. Listen, again, coincidence and look, God bless you. Because they're both yeah. pals of mine. I mean... I'm at home. I haven't done that for about six months. I end up talking to John Carney. John's in New York shooting a movie called Begin Again or Can a Song Save Your Life with Kieran Knightley and Mark Ruffalo. And I said, joke. And he said, Jason, John, anything going on that for me? He said, actually, he said, this, he said, look, this is a very small part, one scene. He said, you can come over and do it. I'll cast you now. I said, well, why not? It's a week in New York. Mm. It's another credit towards getting my sag after Union Cart. I fly over there. I do the one day with Kieran Knightley and Mark Ruffalo. I have two lines to say. But while I'm there, my New York manager rings and says, while you're here, there's an audition around the corner for a movie called Delivery Man. I go on audition and I get the part. Oh, and it's, but it's, it's mad also because like you kind of jumped on the map in the press and stuff like that because everyone said, oh, this is Simon's big break. He's in L.A., he's, he's in Hollywood. Da, da, da. But realistically, what people don't understand is that you've been grafted for the last 10 years prior to that, if not longer. Like people always <laughs> yeah. people always go with the with the with the uh, the one thing, I suppose. Was yeah, it well, it was a big break. You know, it was a big break, Polly, in terms of, you know, it did lead to other things in the States in terms of the good wife and. You know, a couple of other bits and pieces. So it definitely helps. But you can understand why people jump on that. And also, I thought it was lovely. I remember even when it was announced here, I remember this, they mentioned it on Ireland AM. And I was thinking, Jesus, they mentioned it on Ireland AM. <laughs> and now look at me. <laughs> and now look. What's yeah, it, was it, is, it a, is it a big jump between the streets of Dublin to a uh, Hollywood film set? Very different. Very same, but just on a, on a different scale. Um, yeah. The first thing I ever filmed over there was The Good Wife, and that shot out in Brooklyn, these old disused warehouses in Brooklyn. And uh, I just remember the size of this thing. This this, this show was a machine. 22 episodes, they shoot for 10 months a year. These big old disused warehouses in Brooklyn that a guy took over and said, I'm going to turn this into a studio, and he did. And they shoot Blue Bloods there, and they shoot Boardwalk Empire. It's amazing, in the middle of Brooklyn. But just the the sheer scale of it. But then I tell you, I tell you about, well, when you first arrive on set, when I first arrived on set in The Good Wife, and I'm about to go in to meet the cast, Christine Baranski, Broadway legend, uh, Juliana Margiles, Josh Charles, uh, Eddie Izzard. And, oh, I'm, God. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm back to 20 years previously, 
when I'm driving a van for Sam Hire down the Tonnegy Road delivering the scaffolding. And I'm going, <laughs> Jesus Christ, what am I doing here? I remember my opening night in the West End, Paul. I wanted to go home. I was more Yeah. I just thought, what are you doing here? This is this is the this is the West End, baby. Like four years ago, I was doing Oklahoma in the school hall in Eden Moore. In Eden Moore, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? But then I walked on on stage and I thought, no, this is actually I belong here. You know, yeah. and I remember, God, I remember getting a card uh, from the late great Gabe Bourne only two years ago. He came to see me in the snapper. Yeah. And uh, in the gate. And uh, he sent me a gorgeous card. Of course, he came on open night. I didn't even know he was there. He was gone. And I saw the card at Treasure. And he just wrote a little note and he said, uh, well, great show. Really enjoyed the night. He said, isn't it just as well you got that question wrong all those years ago and who wants to be, who a, wants millionaire? To be a millionaire? He said, because otherwise you might not have gone into the acting and then where would we all be? Wow! And I suppose just to give it, just to give a bit of context here, because I know you've said before in interviews, I don't want to talk about the millionaire thing nah, again. You want yeah. you wanted to die off, but just give us a, just give us a bit of a, a tittle, because a lot of people won't know this. So I'm before I turned pro, we just shot the pilot for Bachelor's Walk. It hasn't been picked up as a series. I'm down at Joey Snooker Hall in Harmonstown Road playing snooker with my mate. See the ad in Italian Snooker Hall. Do you want to be a contestant for Millionaire? Text this number. Text the got on the show, got into the chair, got the 16 grand, went for 32, got the question wrong, walked home with a grand. And that's, where I met. that's the first time I met Gabe. I remember somebody saying to Gabe about four or five years ago at some events, and uh, they said, oh, do you know Simon? And Gabe went, no, sure didn't I discover him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just gorgeous, you know. We've we've uh, we've touched on on the on screen opportunities, and you've even said there about you know you're a big musical theater fan. Is musical yeah. theater something you would love to kind of get back in? Because you've done oh, you've done West End, you did uh, Jerry Springer and the Board Gosh, which I loved you in. There's, uh, of course, then the Snapper, which well, you could not get a ticket for love nor money know. like you could it was it was an absolute yeah. and there was talk about that going further afield am I right with the snapper yeah there was there was talk after the first run because we did 108 shows in the gate and they were all sold out um, and there was talk about a touring going to the UK maybe Broadway and then we came back the following summer did a second run again huge success in terms of box office but no I don't know why it didn't work out in terms of I don't know whether it was logistics or a cost thing I don't know it could come back. It could appear somewhere else. I don't know. Uh, but musical theatre is such a huge passion, Paul. There's so many projects I want to do. I want to play Max Bialystok in The Producers. You know, there's a there's hundred parts. I want to do La Casual Fall. You know, uh, it, there's a million things I want to do. But musical theatre has a very special place in my heart. No more so than that's where I met my wife. Absolutely, your gorgeous wife Lisa. The, you you met in the amateur dramatic circuit, yeah, and yeah. and and here you are still together. Uh, she's she's a rock. She's an and she's an absolute oh. legendary woman. She's an unbelievable, an unbelievable. Oh, woman. She needs to be dipped in bronze and sainted. You know, there should be a statue out there because I've been put up with this ages for twenty years now. I mean, ups and downs. Talk about ups and downs, Paul. This business, you know, you're flying high, then you're down here, and you know yourself having a strong partner beside you. That's a must. I was gonna. I was kind of gonna ask that because is it is it very important to not only have people in the industry but people that you can go home to that. And Lisa's oh. lucky; she understands in a way because she's been part of that showbiz yeah. and entertainment yeah. life. But how important it is it to have the the best friend hold your hand and huge, by your side? Huge, because they they pick up the pieces. You know, yeah. when I came home from America that time, 
she picked up the pieces. You know, she's here to celebrate me. She's here to console me. Um, she's here to encourage me. She never once said to me, I, I've had, I have four ideas a day for something. Mm. Mm. A book, a play, a novel, a podcast, a show, whatever. Yeah. She's, never once, she's never once said to me, no, I don't think you should try that now. Oh, I love that. Just, I love yeah, that. Well, give it a go. Give it a go. Off you go. What's the worst that can happen? And that goes back to my sales days as well. Ask them. All they say is no. They say no. Don't worry about it. Isn't that a big thing, though? Especially I've, I've learned that this year that don't sit too comfortably and always just ask the question mm -hmm. because all you can get is a no. And it goes for even. I sent out a lot of emails last week and 90% of them came back now. But listen, like you just said, you'll remember me in four years when, when I send you another email and it's attached. 100%, Paul. You, you've got to have a, a tough neck. You've got to have perseverance, determination and a work ethic and all of those qualities I know you possess because, as you say, I met you when you were 16 and you're a hustler. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. You have to be, Paul. Yeah, you have to be. Come here to me. Our very own Robert Murphy at the Buffess from the, the Panto asks, oh. uh, which do you really prefer? Stage or screen? Now, not screen, RLDM screen, like the, the acting, or do you prefer being on the stage? What's what's better for you? Um, I heard an actor been asked this once, and they, they, they answered brilliantly. They said, when you're on stage and doing a show, say, for example, a snapper, you're doing eight shows a week, and it's every night, two shows on Thursday, two shows on Saturday, you're screaming to be on a film set. And then when you're on a film set, and you're doing 16 hours a day, <laughs> Six days a week, you're wishing that you were in the theatre. I think Niall Boogie again, my cousin, put it best when he said, "An actor's home is on stage," mm -hmm. um, and I think that I think that's very true. I think that connection, that 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 feeling of having an audience there in the palm of your hand, be you doing comedy or tragedy or drama, whatever, but just that thing of looking out above 150, 200 faces, and and they're laughing, and you're saying to yourself, "Jesus, oh, you think that was funny?" I'm going to say something for forty seconds. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Or sad, or it's just yeah. I think on stage, I think I'd feel most at home. But there's something about screen work as well, and, and working as a collaborative effort, you know, with a good director and good writer, and a good cast, you can make magic there too. You know. I suppose with the stage, you're kind of getting the instant high from the reaction of the audience. And when it comes to screen, you're getting, yeah. you're, you're working on something that's going to get that high eventually, but you just have to work towards it. Exactly. It's always a clue, particularly if you're doing comedy, if the crew are laughing, if the crew are laughing, you're in business. If they're standing there looking at you going, what's for fucking lunch? You're in trouble. You know you're, I mean? Yeah, you're having it. You're looking at the watch. All, <laughs> <laughs> all, all this and then becoming a TV presenter, like was... Again, it goes back to the thing. It goes back to the thing we talked about at the start. Is kind of saying you just have to get out and do it. You have to put your hands to everything, and Try you know it. it's so important. Was was that something that you wanted to do, or is it a case of the call comes through to Lorraine, your agent, and you go, Ah, sure, we give it a bash? Yeah, I've done I've done a few documentaries over the years, a couple of things for RT, and loved doing that. Loved doing documentary stuff, and then I got a chance to host the IFTA. So that was my first kind of presenting role uh, live TV I did that for four years like I remember the first night of the IFTAS live on RT1 three and a half hours show on my own yeah terrifying um, but it is all good uh, so then when I got a call about this weekend I am thing that was starting I thought I always remember everyone, look I'll give it a go I don't like I can leave yeah. you know don't have don't don't have a regret don't say shite I should have tried that 
give it a go. And I tell you, I've been sold out of it over the last 12 months. And I love the gig. You know the vibe in there. The team are lovely. The crew are lovely. It's a real family vibe in there. And um, we, 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 we love working with each other. We admire each other. And we help each other, you know. Um, Do you enjoy live television? Oh, I love the fear of it. Yeah, absolutely. Because there is that on. genuine fear in there oh. sometimes when something might go, oh, oh no, you've it's... seen it, Paul. I've fallen off the chair live on television. I've dropped oh, my iPad on my foot. I've choked on things. No, there's a million things. It's great. I love but it. I suppose... People love saying that. Also, especially in this year, you you do get away with more on live, and especially because you guys have been put some so much in front of you to to make TV happen over the last year because know, of yeah. the pandemic. So it's the times where you're falling off the chair, or you're choking <laughs> on something. That's that they're the ones I watch back and go, ah, lads. Ah, I know, lads. but it's even like the wine tasting. Like I, I wouldn't use wine to take a stain out of a carpet, but I have to taste wine on the show. And go, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking I wouldn't put it in a tractor engine. You know what I mean? And there is times, and I, I don't know, we can take this out if we need to, but there is times where I'll be on and I'll sit down about something, especially a talent show I was covering for the for the, for the the show a while ago. And I'd sit down and you'd go, did you watch this? Yeah, great, having a clue. You just keep talking. I'm a double And I would be like, oh, he's a bastard. I go to get him. Yeah, yeah. And we, but, but, that, but it's kind of the joy. And actually... From starting with Ireland AM, uh, you do grab, you do learn new things, especially for me, who, has, a, who has such an interest in this career and that sort of stuff. I learned you often. See, you learn together, Paul. That's yeah. the thing, you know, and I would always take the point of view, particularly doing television presenting and interviewing, and even doing the documentaries, take the viewer's point of view. What question would they ask? Yeah. And I don't be, I don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. I ask 60 stupid questions a week. And I guarantee at least. But ask what you think the people at home would ask. Yeah. No, I think that's the key. And I always remember that you're in people's, it's a very privileged thing to be in people's bedrooms, kitchens and dinner and sit rooms twice, three times a week. It's a very privileged position. Don't forget that there. You're talking to them and you're talking, you're representing them. You know, you're asking their questions and entertaining them. It's entertainment. It ain't today, tonight. And speaking of entertainment, you know, pantomime has become something that you've touched your hand on. Well, it's directing since you were 25, yeah. but pantomime was, with us, I suppose, has been over 10 years now since uh, you've been kind of directing pantomime. Do you love it or do you love the vibe of it? Or is it just that kind of you're so encapsulated with the whole industry? I love it because it's fucking mayhem. Every and it's year. fun. Yeah. No matter how much planning and plotting you do, it always goes belly up and there's always something will happen. Someone's dress will rip, the shoe size is wrong, the light fall down, something goes, I love it. Because again, it's that collaboration thing, Paul, when you're lucky enough to have creators like you around you, choreographers and designers and musical directors, it's magic. There's nothing quite like putting something together like that. Well, I suppose to touch base on, like I said, we met when I was 16, 17. I'd just taken over the choreographer for the pantomime that we've both worked on. You hadn't even chicken. You were only a dancer, Pastor. I was still a dancer. And let me tell you, and let me tell you why you're the choreographer. Because you don't know this. We were in rehearsals in the Tivoli one year and you were rehearsing during your lunch break for a gig you were doing in the George. Yes. And you were doing a, and you were doing bad romance. Do you remember? Yeah. Yes. How do you even remember that? Listen now. Listen while Uncle Simon tells you. <laughs> I sat unbeknownst to you in the auditorium and I watched you do the routine. And I went in backstage and I said to Alan Hughes, Alan, come out here and sit with me for a minute. And brought him out and sat beside me and he watched you doing the routine with them. And as he was leaving, I said, you know, next year, Maybe you should think about choreographer. 
Oh my God. That's, that's no, crazy. Yeah. No, I didn't. And like, that's, it, it's kind of knocks me for six a little bit there. The yeah. following what year. You but, but this, this all goes back to the following year. Then you were my director. So mm. myself and yourself stood side by side for every single rehearsal room and every single thing. And I think that if I hadn't had you to guide me in that direction as a director, I probably mm. wouldn't have come back because as you know, it can be a tough thing. It's a quick product you have to put together and lash out onto the stage. Yeah. And I think you are the most kind of like, we used to, for anyone listening, we used to talk about uh, production meetings and you might just turn to me, I, I might be having a little stress moment and you can see my little 17-year-old overhyped little gay man heart go 90 and you'd go, Friday production meeting and we'd just go out and smoke two cigarettes and make a cup of tea and that was literally be it. And then I'd come back in and be yeah. like, right, I'm ready to tackle exactly, the Exactly, yeah. You'd come back in, you're a Bob Fosse all of a sudden, you know what I mean? Yeah, but that's the way to do it. That's, that's how you learn, Paul. You learn by doing it. And I'm, on the flip side, go back to last year, we worked again together again last year I know that I can at some point stumble across something in the script and go how in the name of Christ will I sort that and you'll go no no I'll handle that because I'll bring them on we'll do this and, bring the kid. and I'm going right Grand Park that Paul has it sorted that's collaboration I was just about to say, and it, it, it it's giving me that aha moment to kind of go, ah, okay, it's not about taking it all on yourself and doing it yourself. It's actually no. opening up the arms going, lads, I need a bit of help here. Can we all yeah, work on this? It's collaboration. Yeah. Only the, only the tyrants, will, the directors who are tyrants will suffer and take everything on themselves. Particularly with a musical and an urban panto, when you've got a team, it's a creative team. You have a musical director, you have a choreographer. It's not all your ball game. Use them, use their expertise, ask them for help and create it together not on your own it's not your wow. vision it's the team's vision does it help to be one of the nicest guys in the business because you will well, not I find because I'm an arsehole <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't you genuinely oh, wouldn't find somebody who has a, like I could say to 100 more people oh yeah working with Simon they, ah he's love I love him and it could be people in the industry then so never mind the bridey and Dunstores kill the man who's talking about uh, you yeah. it could be anybody from the industry it helps then to kind of be a good person and well you know what Paul I've always taken the mantra of you should never walk away from a gig whatever the gig is a voiceover gig a theatre show a film a short film a panto you should never walk away from a job and have anybody say Christ he's an arsehole yeah never 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 and it goes back to something my father told me years ago you know and I've said this to you many a time never ignore the doorman on the lift on the way up because he's going to be there on the way back down and you never know particularly on a film set or in a theatre rehearsal room who's going to write the next script who's going to have the next big idea and who will they want to work with again? And don't mm. do it falsely. I'm not talking about pretend to be a nice guy. Treat Genuine. people like you want to be treated. Yeah, I, because, well, you know, you're lucky, and I'm lucky in that we've both been on both sides of the rehearsal room. Mm. You know, you want the director or creative team that aren't going to bring you in and sit you there from 10 to 6 and you're doing nothing. They want a creative team who's, who's going to schedule it. So you come in from 10 to 12, you can go, because I won't be using you. But I've worked with directors where I went into a rehearsal room at nine and I sat there till six. I might not get on the floor at all. That's it. That's for me, that's wrong because that creates the wrong atmosphere. That's mm. not conducive to a collaborative atmosphere where we're all trying to create something together. I remember doing The Wireman with Shea Healy's musical, which was directed by the most beautiful man in the world, Matt Ryan, great West End director. And I learned so much from him about how to conduct himself in a rehearsal room, how he, I watched him work with the MD, 
about the choreographer and working with the cast and around the producers and the writers and made us all, every member of the chorus, the ensemble, feel like by the time we came to open the night and we were performing the world premiere of the show, that we all had a huge personal stake in it. And we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way, that's the directing style. I think creatives respond to. And that's what we should aspire to as creatives ourselves. Do you still make goals for the career? We're coming to the end. I just kind of want to touch on a few little things. Yeah. Do you do you still make goals for what what what's next? Hundred percent. Yeah, my first novel will be out hopefully at the end of this year. Um, I want to. I've written a couple of TV shows, dramas and comedies, and a feature. I want to write, direct, and produce my own TV uh, films, my own feature films. I want to get back on stage. I want to do Broadway. Broadway still has to be. That's a box that has to be ticked. Yeah. Um. There's lots of goals. There's lots of people that I want to work with. Um. There's lots of people that I don't want to work with. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a bigger list. That's but the big no, one. You've, you've got to have goals and ambitions and little things. I am a great man for set deadlines, and I love having a th- having something to work to. So yeah, yeah. Listen, <laughs> the possibilities are endless, Bob. What do you say to anyone who's trying to make it in this industry or who's who's struggling <clears throat> along as an actor or as a performer or as a director? You know, what what's what's the 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 key advice? Um, you know, it's all about your attitude to it. Um I do think you need to treat it like a job. Give it give it the respect it deserves. Preparation is key. Absolutely key. Uh, look, that's in all walks of life. Yeah. But in our business, it certainly is. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself because this business will make a fool of you if you don't treat it properly. Um, and don't be afraid to try different things. I remember Michael Gambon, Sir Michael Gambon telling me years ago to the film with him, and he spoke about the difference between British and Irish actors and American actors. And I said, well, what do you mean the difference? He said, well, British and Irish actors are, I said, American actors, when they're not working, they'll go and learn how to speak Spanish. They'll go and learn how to juggle. They'll go and learn how to ride a horse. They'll go and learn how to ride a unicycle. Building their skill set all the time. So when they go to the audition room, there's more to offer. You Mm. know this word, the triple threat, singer, actor, dancer. Most of the actors that we see in these big American TV dramas, they're all Broadway stars. They can all sing, act, and dance. British and Irish actors tend to sit at home when they're not working and wonder why they're not working. Yeah. Sitting there going, what what am I doing wrong? Forget about it. Ditch that attitude for a start. Get out, you know, take a creative writing course. Start writing yourself, write some poetry, write some short stories. Learn a language, learn how to sing, pick up a guitar. Just try and build that skill set. So again, go back right to the start. When you knock on that door at the audition room, you're giving yourself the best opportunity. Wow, wow. Uh, who has been, well, last question, and this is just a little added extra, who's been your favourite person to, to to work alongside, as in, like, uh, actor? Oh, uh, with, without question, Alan Hughes. He's, um, <laughs> he's... <laughs> no, I love working with Al. Um, uh, listen, Jesus, Paul, there's so many. I've been blessed. I've worked with Michael Caine and Dan Aykroyd and Gillian Anderson. There's been dozens of them. Um, well, you know what? It's probably I could say some names that people who are listening to the show won't even recognise. Paul, it's yeah. what you get. It's 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 whatever you get the most. Out of. I adore working with creators. I love working with you. It's just I'm so lucky that I get to do a job that I love doing. And by Christ, it makes it easier. And if you could go back and do one more role again, if you could play one more role again, what would it be? Wow, wow. 
wow, wow, that's a great question. Uh, I played Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls back yeah. in 1937 or something. <laughs> Adele was two. Adele was two. She was, uh, yeah, she auditioned, didn't get in. Um, and it was one of the best times I've had on stage with an amazing bunch of people who who are still my friends 25 years later. Um, although I do remember on the second night of the show in the school hall, oh, I need more. My, my suit trousers ripped from front to back. So I spent the first 20 minutes pointing at the front row. Oh, it wasn't great. Yeah, no. it wasn't great. So <laughs> They hadn't paid memories. for the VIP seats? They didn't. They got extra that night. Not much extra, but extra <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> uh, so I'd love to revisit Nathan at some point, yeah. Good, good. Uh, and I suppose, final word, just give us the best bit of advice you've ever received. Is, is there a single single line that you can tell me that's something that'll stick? Um, the best bit of advice I've ever got. Uh, probably, you know, it's my dad. My dad had a couple of mantras like about, you know, work ethic. But I think that idea of just be careful how you treat people. That idea of don't ignore the doorman going up in the lift because the, the same guy is going to be standing there when you come back down, Bob. Um, you know, surround yourself with people who think like you and you'll be fine. Unbelievable. Simon Delaney, because of you, I am influenced. <laughs> God bless you, Paul. I love you. Love you, love you. Thank you for listening to Influenced with me, Paul Ryder. Please rate, review and subscribe. And you can find me on social media at RuPaulRyder. Thank you for listening. <laughs>